You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. everybody. Good to see you all. We are, we have two chapters left in Genesis. Um, We're in the closing unit beginning 48 all the way through 50. Last week we talked about um, the blessings we have and that we don't choose our blessings. And this is going to be a chapter of last words and it's going to be a chapter almost entirely focused on prophecy. Um, prophecy is an interesting thing. Uh, they, some people have a lot of interest in the prophecies of the last days and what's coming and um, some of what Matt was alluding to, these birth pains that Jesus foretold were going to happen. And there's general prophecy and then it ranges all the way to very specific prophecy. So general would be something that God said to Abraham, you will be a blessing to all the earth. That's a prophecy of what's to come. It's very general. How's that going to look? There's not really very specific at all. It's really hard to tell when it's going to be fully fulfilled. It's very general. But then we get to things that are really specific, such as the prophecy that um, Pharaoh had in his dream of the seven cows, and then they were eaten up, and the seven stalks of grain, and they were eaten up. It's real specific what's going on here. This is going to be seven good years followed by seven bad years, and it's set general prophecy. Again, though, it can be really hard to tell when it's fulfilled, what it means, unless God reveals it. So many of these things can be said to us, can be put out there, but we have no real definitive answer to, no matter how much we feel like, I've got a pretty good idea. It's not definitive unless the Lord declares. And so I want to use Daniel 2.27 to illuminate this for us. And this idea that unless God has declared, this means this, when we look at prophecy and we look at what is becoming of it, it's our best guess. So out of Daniel 2, it says, Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery the king has asked. So this particular king, much into the future, had a dream. He was very disturbed by his dream. And he said, hey, I want you to tell me what my dream meant to all the wise men of the land. He said, but I'm not even going to tell you what the dream was. Prove that you actually do have some sort of connection to the spiritual powers, the principalities, that you're not just all frauds. Prove it to me. And I want to know what my dream meant. And of course, nobody could answer that question. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living. Please take those words to heart. When we feel we can clearly delineate this prophecy is being answered in this moment. I know I've got it figured out. Not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. 
God reveals mysteries. The prophecies that are declared, the prophecies that have been spoken of, our best guesses are these answers that we're going to look at today and that we look at all throughout Scripture when we see prophecies, particularly the end times and what that will be. It's written in allegory, poetic language of people describing things they could not understand in human words. I saw this and it kind of looked like this. What that specifically looked at, consider for a moment, how would you describe something you don't have words for? That's what a lot of these people are doing. God showed them a great mystery, said it's going to come. What that exactly looks like, we're not always sure. We can see the signs. Well, there have been a lot of earthquakes, been a lot of wars, been a lot of rumors of wars. It's starting to look like the things Jesus was talking about. But we can't say definitive. It's going to be today. It's going to be tomorrow. It's going to be a thousand years from now. People have been thinking we've been in the, the end days for 2,000 years. Perspective. Remember, to the Lord, a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. Time scales are different. Be on guard, be on watch, be ever alert, keep your candles trimmed, keep the oil filled. Always be ready, because it can be any day. It could be today. It could be a minute from now. We don't know, but we have been forewarned. We know what is ahead, if not definitively, exactly when. And so today, we're going to be looking at some hard truths in these prophecies. These are not only prophecies of what's to come. These are Jacob's final words to his children. Not all of them are nice things to say. I think a lot of times we read through this chapter and we read through it almost like we turn the emotional filter off and go, these are just things to come. But imagine for a moment, this is dad sitting in a room with his sons and he's going to tell them some really hard things. Quite a few of them, actually. And some of you, I know, are much more concerned with how people feel with what we say. It's okay. God has made you beautiful that way. There are people like me that would prefer just to give the brutal truth. And there are people in this audience that would prefer that as well. You will appreciate this chapter. <laughs> now, consider for ourselves, that's not free license to just give brutal truth to everybody around you. Fruits of the Spirit, kindness, goodness, gentleness, love, self-control, how we deliver is still our responsibility. I need to deliver you hard truth. I can do that with kindness. Genesis 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. The last will and testament of Jacob. This is going to be lots of information, lots of info, lots of history. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. It's a nice start. <laughs> Unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. 
because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Reuben, Reuben, Reuben. You cannot be trusted. You're up and then you're down. You got highs and you got lows. We cannot entrust the family to you. We look at Genesis 35 that he was just talking about. You defiled my bed when he slept with Billa. Genesis 37, you couldn't convince your brothers not to harm Joseph. Genesis 42, you offered your own sons lives as retribution if you couldn't bring back my other son. We, we cannot trust this to you, Reuben. You will not have preeminence. You will not be in charge of this family. I bid you good day, sir. <laughs> Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For their anger, for in their anger they killed men, and their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. There's an implication here that some of this character traits have not changed. This happened a long time ago, this specific event that's being talked about in Shechem, when their sister Dinah was defiled, when they used subterfuge to uh, deceive an entire town and slaughter all the men and carry off the women and children. Fierce anger, cruel wrath, we cannot be joined to this. We look into the future with Simeon and Levi, and we see just these things happen. It's interesting, for the tribe of Simeon, their allotment, and in a little bit we'll look at a map and I'll show you, their allotment is engulfed in another tribe. They'll be completely and utterly surrounded by Judah, and essentially the strength of their tribe it just dissipates. Levi, on the other hand, doesn't even get a tribal allotment. But something changes here. This part where it says, oh, my glory, be not joined to their company, that shifts. And I want to highlight a real important thing here. Even amongst prophecy, we must understand the character of God and what he does and what he chooses not to do sometimes. It says out of Jeremiah 18, then the word of the Lord came to me. Oh, house of Israel, can I not do with you? As this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disasters I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build up and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. God can change his mind if he wants to. What's interesting from that, we read a lot of verses where it says, God is not one to change his mind like a man. Like a man is the indicator there. He's not fickle. He's measured and loving and kind. 
and just. And so if a nation will relent of its ways, as Levi does, he will shift what he's going to do. Levi will still be scattered, but he will be joined to the glory of the Lord. The tribe of Levi will become the priests of God Most High. They will represent the people toward God moving forward. Moses himself is from the tribe of Levi, chosen over any other person to be God's friend, to speak to him face to face. And yet his tribe will still be scattered amongst all of Israel. They will have no land to call their own. They will have all of, everything they have, they will be dependent on every other tribe. We're going to go upwards now. We had a lot of down. <laughs> Judah. Judah. Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah's a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding the, his fowl to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vestitures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. A lot of imagery in this. A few different things that we know are in part in this. They begin to be filled within humanity and they have their fulfillment in Jesus, coming from the tribe of Judah. So the lion and the scepter. The lion it, as a beast is always referred to as the king of beasts. It's a very common depiction in the Near East of this particular creature, royalty. The scepter between your feet, royalty, kingship fulfilled initially by King David of the tribe of Judah, continuing in all the way to Jesus as the ultimate king of all humanity. Obedience of the people, bringing tribute to him. Again, this begins with King David when he starts to subdue the people around him. They literally bring him tribute, and this will be fulfilled in Jesus completely when every tribe and every tongue comes and bows down to Jesus. And talking about that foal and that donkey being tied to the vine and washing the vestments in wine, this is an allusion to abundance. If you're willing to tie a donkey or a fowl to the grapevine, it's going to eat the grapes. It's going to eat the produce. And saying you have so much, you don't even care. You're going to wash your vestments in wine, meaning wine is in such abundance that it's no different than wash water. You've got so much. You'll be blessed in such great degree, Judah. And again, this begins at the house of David, and it has its ultimate fulfillment in Christ when the abundance comes through all the earth, that there's so much that is pouring out that no one is in need any longer. When we look at 1 Kings 4, 20 through 34, this is actually during the reign of King Solomon, David's son. This is the fulfillment as much as it could possibly be in human hands. When in King Solomon's day, silver was so plentiful that people would not stoop to pick it up. 
be treating, be treating like $10 bills like they were pennies on the ground. That's eh, just a 10. <laughs> the days of Solomon, such immense abundance, followed by a really sharp decline. And then we'll start to see after that a lot of this repeated phrase, for the sake of my servant David, there will always remain someone to seat on the throne. For the sake of my servant David, I will preserve them. For the sake of my servant David, they will, there will be a remnant of the house of Judah. They are the house that is chosen to be the righteous branch. They will be the remnant people. And then we start getting to much shorter, odd blessings. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his borders shall be at Sidon. And read that, and I didn't really think anything of it. Anybody else think anything of that the first time they read it? Let's look at a map. <laughs> if we don't look at some of these details, then it can really get in the way. Zebulun is landlocked. So how on earth can it dwell by the edge of the seashore? There we go. Beautiful. This is Zebulun. Sidon is here. How can this possibly be a haven for ships? And how can it find all its abundance from the seas? So, there's a few actual answers to this that we have to realize. This is a map of the tribal inheritance as was allotted out after the conquest. But something we must realize. This is not forever and for all time. This is also not what necessarily happened in its fulfillment. This is simply what we read, and they should have this area, and this area, and this area, and this area. But Dan never got any of it. This never happened. It's just simply what they were told would be yours if you go up and take it, as you're called to do. And they failed. Dan ends up having a large amount of their people migrate north to this little city called Dan. And the majority of their populace heads up there. They don't even end up living in the spot they were supposed to. So, for one, this isn't necessarily as going to be now and forever. It's what they allotted up after the conquest. For two, people move around. I'm just going to use Jesus' family for an example. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He's of Judah, yes. It's way down here. Bethlehem, the whole nation of Judah. You know where his parents are from? They're Judeans. Nazareth's up here. Judeans, not even living in their tribal allotment. People move around. There's nothing saying that a bunch of people from Zebulun didn't go and settle on Sidon and by the coast and have a lot of their involvement in trade. The whole purpose of this statement is to allude that these people will find great abundance in trade and by the sea and working into those things. Last potential possibility here. The Assyrian Empire came through and took 
all of these people away. All gone. Not a soul was left there. They took them all and they put Assyrians in those towns. They're all gone. We don't know where they went. They are the lost tribes of Israel that are currently somewhere in the world of these, to this day. They're ancestors. They're descendants. For all we know, they could have been living in Sidon for the last 2,000 years. We don't know. But people use this as a point of contention. It's like, well, they never actually lived by the sea as we look at this one snapshot in time that did not last for a very long time. But we would have even no idea that this was an argument or a concern if we didn't look at a map. We're actually going to look at this a couple times as we move forward. Issachar, a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Thanks, Dad. Appreciate that. Choice, alluding to a choice of comfort over freedom. This idea of this is good, it's plentiful, and you know if we just give up a little freedom, we can still enjoy this comfort. But when? When does this happen? We don't know. The best idea is that sometime probably when the Assyrians came in and swept everybody out, choosing to not resist as much in order to maintain a little bit more comfort and freedom. Dan, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. That's nice. Dan shall be like a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that his rider falls back. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Dan is not going to be a very influential part of Israel. Um, even that allusion to him being a judge at some point is going to be Samson. Anybody read about Samson? <laughs> Mighty man, not a very smart man. Uh, not very clever, uh, deceived, got a little bit too comfortable with his own strength and relying entirely upon that, and that led to his downfall. And the allusion to him being biting as a serpent along the way, on the path, is uh, more of a war tactic of surprise attack is the only thing that's really going to be successful for Dan in order to claim anything into the future. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. So back to the map for a moment. Gad is one of a couple tribes that settled. This area here, isn't where that original allotment was meant to be. This nice line right here is the separation. Everybody was meant to be in these borders. And Gad, much like Lot, said, hey, the Jordan Valley looks good. And that worked out real well for Lot, didn't it? Um, it's going to work out similarly for Gad. Hey, Gad, you're like such an amazing target right here from all these surrounding nations. You're going to get attacked a lot because of that choice to settle. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Rich food, great commerce, amazing agricultural location. So when we look at Asher on that map, they are the ones that are actually along the seashore. There are so many 
port cities along there. The actual pro, um, agriculture production there is amazing. So they have a very excellent spot way up north. Naphtali is a doe. Let loose that bears beautiful fawns. That's nice. <laughs> what does that mean? The only thing we can really allude to is it means you're going to be very prolific. You're going to be very fruitful. Your people are going to multiply. Then we get to Joseph. Now, Joseph's sons have already received kind of the more specific blessing. So this one's going to be a little bit more general. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mightier beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. So alluding to that previous blessing to Ephraim and Manasseh, the fruitful bough is abundant growth, extreme populace. Manasseh's tribe gets so big, they need two allotments of space, one on one side of the river, one on the other. He was bitterly attacked. It's more of a reminder of the past that no matter what people did, try to bring you down, Joseph. You stood firm because God was with you and he will continue to be with you. And this idea of the great blessings and being set apart, the greater authority, that preeminence is going to go to Joseph and it's going to stay with Joseph for a very long time. It will actually even only be for the house of Judah and the house of Benjamin for a really tiny period of time. And then the nation splits in half and Joseph has preeminence again over the majority. And then we have Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and the evening dividing the spoil. War, battle prowess, Benjamin. Look at Judges 20, 1 Samuel 14. Judges 20 talks about the entire nation of Israel coming against the tribe of Benjamin and having a hard time of it. Their one little tribe of Benjamin fended them all back. It wasn't until they outmaneuvered them in battle that they were even able to stand against them at all. 1 Samuel 14 is talking about when Saul of the tribe of Benjamin was set up as king, and he has victories over all of his enemies, and he's fighting all of his days. Amazing battle prowess. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessings suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, there they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. 
talking about things to come and each blessing being suitable to the one that could handle it. Who can handle what into the future? So now what are we to learn from this? How do we take something away from this? It's a lot of information. It's a lot of stuff to come. It doesn't seem as necessarily directly applicable. Well, first of all, not all truth is easy. Not all important things to be said are going to be things we want to hear. Nobody wants to hear, sorry, son, you're basically getting nothing. No one wants to hear, hey, your future people are going to be attacked all the time. Not all truth is easy. The very first truth that was ever presented to me as a believer contesting my faith was out of Matthew 10. It was in high school, junior or senior, I can't recall which, and new believer looking into it, investigating, and had somebody bring this passage and say, what do you think of this? Matthew 10, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. This is Jesus speaking. And I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is a piece of hard truth. This piece of truth says, your family may not be your idol. You may not worship them over me. You may not choose them over me. For all time, family has been an idol, whether we want to admit it or not. Now, even more than ever, it would seem, we worship the family. We worship, you must choose me over everything in your life. I'm your family. And God is saying, there will be times where you are a believer and a member of your family is not. And they're going to create this as a divide. They're going to make themselves your enemy because of it. Will you choose peace in your family by denying me? Or will you continue to choose me? Will you answer the call that I have for you, even though your family complains all the time? It's always church. You always go to church. Everything's about the church. Some of you have children that have said such things to you. And it's saying, as God, I come first. It's easy to read. It's hard to live. It's a hard truth. But it asks us the question, do we believe God when he says, this is who I am and this is what I expect of you? Do we have faith in him? Do we have a perspective that this world isn't it? This time here isn't it? We're going to have eternity. For now, we have a job to do. That's hard to hear. I like it while I'm here. I want to enjoy my time while I'm here. I don't want to have constant conflict with my family while I'm here. But it's a short blip. And God's saying, while you're here, will depend 
on what happens there. It's going to have all the impact while you're here. What you do in your life, who you spend your time with, what you spend your time on. Are you answering my call? It's not your salvation that's in question here. That's not what's being spoken to here. It's your effectiveness in expanding the kingdom. It's other people's salvation that's at concern here. Impacting their lives, showing God to them will often come at expense of all the other things that we would rather do with our time. Not all truth is easy to hear. There's plenty of things throughout all scripture. We could talk about it all day long about the difficult things to hear, but it really, at the end of the day, do we trust God? And to realize the things to come aren't always going to be clear. The mysteries that are spoken of, the prophecies that are alluded to, the things yet to be. When it's going to happen, where it's going to happen, how it's going to happen. When we think, is it going to look exactly this way or that way? Out of Luke 24, talking about his coming, his sacrifice. We look at them now and how could they not have seen this? And they didn't. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and, have, and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. A lot of smart people argue about the things of the Bible and the things to come. I'm going to say that again. A lot of very smart people disagree. And if a lot of people who spend their whole lives investigating this disagree, we should be very cautious when we say, well, I've got it figured out. I don't know what their problem is. <laughs> we need to be cautious in this. We need to be wary when we're declaring truths of great mysteries. And the last things I want to say here is that not everyone gets to be a Joseph or Judah. When we read about Joseph and Judah, they had amazing blessings. It sounds great. Not everyone gets to be a Joseph or Judah. Out of Matthew 25, it says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Each one of us has been given something different. Alluding again to the blessings. Judah and Joseph, five talent guys. It doesn't matter how much Issachar wants to be a five talent guy, he's a one talent guy. Raging against the Lord on that will change nothing. That's hard to receive if you're a one-talent person. Can I be at least a two-talent person, God? But that's the reality. It's a hard truth. The reality that life is neither equal nor fair. Something within our society right now we're seeing, we're trying to make everything equal. 
And there's nobility in that and wanting to make sure everyone has the same opportunities, want to make sure everyone has an equal shake, everyone has the opportunity to succeed, that there's no one that's living in abject poverty. These are noble pursuits. But there's only so much we can control beyond what God is going to control. You know what's something I will never get to experience in life? It doesn't matter, no matter what anybody does, I will never be as tall as Chuck. <laughs> Ever. I don't get that experience in life. That's not fair. It just is. We have to be able to accept some of these things about who we are and the blessings we've each been individually given. And what's so very important to remember is despite any of the blessings you've been given, the expectation is the same on everyone. When we read the rest of that passage about the people with one given five, one given two, one given one, what does it say when the master comes back to see what was done? The five talent guy, he says, hey, I made five more talents. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's a lot. That's a lot. He doubled what he was given. A lot of work had to go into that. The two-talent guy shows up. He says, hey, I made two talents. It's nowhere close to the five. Do you know what God says to him? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You did the best that you could do with what I gave you. And that's all I ever wanted from you. He didn't expect him to be a five-talent guy even though he made him a two-talent guy. But conversely, and something I think would be very deeply helpful to some, what would have happened if the five-talent guy only brought back two talents? Would the response have been so kind. You're a five-talent guy. I expect you to be a five-talent guy. We always look at the, the inheritance, the reward at the end. But in God's economy, he says, to much whom is given, much is required. I expect that you will use every bit that I've given you. And in God's economy, it's not for personal fulfillment. Part of the perspective we have to glean is that it's not about my enriching myself or you enriching yourself with these talents. These are meant to go outwards to others, meaning the benefits from these aren't necessarily things you're gleaning. So it's a lot of work for the sake of the kingdom, not the sake of self. And if you're a five-talent person, that's a lot more work than the two-talent person and way more work than the one-talent person. But it's still expected of you. So consider, although it may, we may see, wow, the expectation is so much higher. And yet the reward is the same. What God gives you, he expects you to use, no matter where you're at, and no more and no less. So that at the end of the day, 
when we meet Jesus, we can all hear these words from Matthew 25. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Amen.